to the Evolving Media Podcast, where we look at where the world of media is heading and talk to people from different areas of the industry about key aspects of the trends and habits we see growing right now. Media is in a state of flux, to say the least. Audience habits change rapidly. Social media and recommendations can sync a story or a piece of content as quickly as it can be raised into stardom and global success. At the same time, large parts of the industry are, for one reason or another, mired in old models of thinking, not to mention producing and distributing. In the Evolving Media podcast, we try to straighten out some question marks and give fellow creators, producers and assorted persons inspiration, information and knowledge that might help them on their way to fulfilling their dreams and realizing their projects. Now, my guest today has a track record longer than my arm. Starting out with creating the Blair Witch Project, he's since worked on everything from seminal transmedia production Art of the Heist to campaigns for things like Game of Thrones, Westworld, True Blood, Sense8, Handmaid's Tale, and so on. So I'm delighted to have Mike Monello from Campfire NYC with me here today. Mike, hi, and uh, let me just ask you first, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. It's the uh, day before Thanksgiving here in the United States. Oh, that's true. You do the you do the turkey thing and everything. That's right. <laughs> Coming tomorrow, so it's nice. Everything's uh, uh, the work is tapering off. People are heading home, and then things are getting quiet, which is always fun. Oh, that's that's so lovely. Uh, listen, I, I just spent the last minute or so listing things that you have worked on over your career. It took a while, and it's it, it, it's quite a lot of things that that uh, that most listeners I think will recognize immediately. The properties, etc. But right now, though, you're working on something uh, a little bit different. Video Palace, right? Could you tell us a little bit about what Video Palace is? Yes, definitely. So Video Palace is a uh, it's a scripted fiction podcast. Um, the podcast space is something I've been paying attention to for a long time. And in particular, kind of waiting for an audience to grow large enough to, uh, to so that there's a diversity of people who are interested in more than just say true fiction or true uh, crime podcasts. So um, after tracking the space for a while, uh, finally felt like now was the time to jump in and do, do something. So uh, Video Palace is actually a uh, – it's a horror podcast, scary story, but it's kind of um, – it's not so much like jump scare. It's more like a creeping dread kind of horror. Uh, it's a story about a uh, a guy and his partner, his his girlfriend, who um, stump – who they collect uh, VHS tapes, the old VHS tapes. Um, and this guy buys a lot off of eBay and um, he gets in a big box, one that's a, a white tape. And that white tape kind of sets him on a path of investigating an urban legend that surrounds these white tapes in one particular video store uh, where they originated from. And so, uh, and so it's kind of a first person. It's not really a radio drama. It kind of takes the style of what most people are familiar with, with podcasts and plays with crossing over in fiction and reality, which is something that I think is a thread through a lot of the projects that I've been involved in. 
but um, but it, it, uh, for us, we we kind of were hoping to produce something that was uh, uh, at a level that hadn't really that you don't really hear too often. You know, most podcasts are extremely low budget, and this one is is fairly low budget as well. But we wanted to produce it. We wanted the acting to sound. Uh, real and authentic, uh, and and we wanted the writing to feel real. Like what you know, what I what we found in doing a survey of fiction podcasts was that too much, too often uh, they fall apart because of the acting and because they're overwritten. And I think that a lot of people feel like because it's audio, they need to describe everything. And we feel like we we I think we get across a lot uh, just through the the tenor of the voices, the emotion in the voices. So, yeah, it's a it's kind of a, a whole new thing. It's not really a marketing project. It's really kind of a side project. It's not a, a campfire project per se, but um, it's it's uh, very exciting and it's kind of fun to get back into original storytelling after uh, having started Campfire and been involved some in so many projects where the budgets come from marketing. So I, I've listened to a couple of the episodes so far, and I can testify to it being the creeping horror that you described. But also, I mean, I, I have a radio background, so I, I, I think I can tell when it's a good, high-quality audio production. And, it's, and it is, and it's a, for a podcast, it's, I think it's, it's well-written and it's well-produced as well. But what made you, what, and you said that you'd, kept tabs on this area that the market would be uh, mature enough for you to go into it. What, what made you think that now was the right time? Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, my, my background is in indie film. And uh, I think what excited me was that I start to I feel like the podcast industry right now is in the same place that the kind of the independent film scene was in, in the mid to late 90s around the time that we made Blair Witch Project. And wh- what I mean is that uh, it's 10 years old. I mean, it's been around for a long time. And a lot of people have uh, like the, the forms and the formats have sort of been codified. There's enough technology around to support the distribution um, that is easily accessible. You know, you no longer have to figure out how to work an RSS feed on your own and code up your own site and and, and, ha- and getting it into the Apple store. I mean, those are all uh, much easier now. Um, and the means of producing the podcasts are, are, are fairly inexpensive, but there's a large enough audience out there for them. And there's enough uh, of the media industry paying attention to the space and looking at them that there's a path to, if you start, if you make a story in podcast form while the advertising isn't there yet and the, the uh, monetization features within podcasts aren't there yet, there's a path to uh, to being able to take your podcast and do something even larger with it if you have those ambitions. Uh, so in the same way that you know you used to be able to invest in an indie film and then take it to festivals like Sundance and and possibly get a sale and make your money back and have the film seen. I think the great thing about podcasts is that um, you could make a podcast, you can get it heard, uh, provided that you rise to a certain level of quality and different differentiation in the marketplace, uh, you can get it heard. And, but there's a, there's a path to taking that story further, whether you want to push it into a television show or a movie or books, uh, expand into other media where maybe the, uh, opportunity to monetize is a little more codified. Uh, is that what you're hoping to, to do with video? Calls? I would assume so. 
Yeah, well, you know, I mean, Video Palace came out of really an opportunity because Video Palace was not a, a, an independent production. This was funded by Shudder, which is AMC Network's uh, streaming horror service. So um, this was actually pitched much more traditionally uh, 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 to the to the programming team at at Shutter, and they and they loved it. And then we kind of figured out a budget and went and made it. So even though it was a low budget, uh, it did have the we. Uh, I we knew when we were making it that this was going to be released through the Shutter platform, as well as through iTunes, um, which is a little bit different than I think you know having done you know trying to to drum it up as an independent project altogether. Absolutely, yes, yeah, sir. good. Oh no, but um, you know the the reason for wanting to do it, it's 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 actually if you look at Campfire's work, I think in a way we've been gravitating more towards audio production uh in the last few years right we did a interactive we called it an interactive trailer for a show for a cinemax show outcast and um that was largely even though it was online it was largely audio it was virtual audio driven and the narrative was mostly told through audio and then uh, we had a big project for amazon uh, the man in the high castle called resistance radio and that was four hours of audio uh drama it wasn't a podcast it had music and it was done more like radio shows but it was a kind of a, a, a radio station in a fiction universe. And so um, we've been kind of uh, sharpening our audio skills uh, over time uh, for a couple of reasons. And one is that I think as as we take stories and we put them into non-traditional spaces, uh, particularly if uh, the, if, if the flag has already been planted in the ground in the movie and television space, right? A lot of times, you know, if, if we're getting marketing dollars to promote a TV show, the one thing they don't want us to make is more video content because that's what we're promoting. So we have to think about how to push those narratives in other spaces and audio just makes sense from a, from a budget perspective. But also I think the opportunity to evoke, especially alternate times and alternate places and, and, uh, and, ultimate stories, uh, and, and to play on people's imagination with them is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, and the fact that, um, people seem to have more opportunities to spend time with audio, whether it's on their commute through a podcast or, or just when they're, um, doing something else, you know, people are more amenable to audio even than, uh, I think video or, you know, people just aren't visiting websites anymore. They're getting everything through social media feeds, uh, uh which is, which doesn't really lend itself to a deep engagement, right? It's a super quick engagement. Uh, so it's just felt that, you know, in a way it's sort of following the audience. Yeah, so because that's what I'm hearing from a lot of the people I'm talking to, creators, producers, etc., that have this exact challenge. How can they reach people when there's so much that they're competing with? Where do they start? What kind of strategy, etc., and so forth? Um, and it seems like doing it your way, i.e. trying to reach them in places where other people don't really reach them yet or where they have more time to Definitely. engage. Definitely. I mean, I, I think it's a combination of, you know, looking at uh, places where audiences are underserved. You know, um, or place or or and I think this is one of the reasons why genre 
uh, stories tend to be the first ones into a new space is that um, fans of, of genre stories are constantly looking for something new and they're generally underserved by mainstream media. So, you know, in the case of horror, right, you have a, a, a very successful streaming service like Shudder that's feeding a very specific audience who's looking for horror and suspense and thriller type programming. Um, and they're there and they're constantly looking for new things. So if you can give them, if you can give them a story, especially even in a format like podcasting, which is, you know, most of them are looking for video content, but then the opera, you know, they just love scary movies. So shifting that audience over to a podcast is not as huge a jump for people who are already wanting kind of fun, scary stories. Uh, and I, and I think, so looking at where our audience is being underserved and then also looking at where our audience is being served, but maybe the quality isn't there, you know, which is another big one. Uh, can you come in with something that's at a higher quality or a higher standard maybe than what people are, are, are paying attention to in the space there? Because that's also a sign to me. I look at it and go, it's similar to the iPhone, right? Like, uh, uh, everybody said Apple was going to fail when they launched the iPhone because everybody had blackberries and trios. But the reality is no, everybody had them, but nobody loved them. You know, nobody loved their smartphones at the time. And it wasn't until Apple came out with one that was just better that people loved it, that all of a sudden the market exploded and now everyone's got a smartphone. And I think that, um, you know, in something like podcasting, there's an opportunity maybe to achieve something like that just by looking at, you know, the last thing you want to do today is start a true crime podcast because the market is completely saturated. But the the fact that the true crime podcast is bringing tons of people in makes makes me go, okay, well, what do fans of true crime podcasts also enjoy, right? Because they're they're not just obsessively about true crime podcasts. What are they also going to enjoy? Because they're hanging around now in the podcast apps looking for things, and what can I feed them? You know, so. I know that what's not going to work is a, uh, it, at least for that audience, for that large true crime podcast, probably is, uh, is you know, an, uh, a podcast adaptation of Howard's End. Probably not going to fly for that audience. I mean, there might be an audience out there for it, but you know, so a spooky, scary story seems like a, a, a an easy transition fans of that to try something new so so how did you approach video palace when you because you started out you had shutter on board you were you were publishing through shutter but um how did you uh, i mean earlier you talked about the earlier projects you've been involved in where the flag had been planted by major blockbuster movies or or netflix series etc and so forth but what about uh what about this project where there was no previous um, flag planted. How, how did you approach that challenge? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, so. Nick Braccia, who's a creative director at Campfire and I, I think we we always love. I mean, you can tell from my background that, that I love urban legends, in particular any kind of story that feels like it could have been real, like a fictional story that feels like it has roots in some kind of urban legend which I think are the kinds of stories we just love to tell, right? They're the kinds of stories that you don't just say, hey, let me tell you a story. You kind of, people tend to start them up with a, a little white lie, like, oh, let me tell you 
about this thing that happened to my third cousin's uh, uh, brother's friend, you know, and you set them up as if they're real and you tell this story. And um, I love stories like that. And so um, we had actually been uh, uh, working with Shutter on a potential marketing project that really uh, didn't didn't come to fruition, but that's kind of how both Nick and I got exposure to Shutter and got to see kind of the platform and the audience that they were serving, and um, and we're really kind of excited by it. So uh, uh, one of the story was actually sparked by an original show uh, that is on Shutter. They have a show called The Core, which is which is Shutter. So Shutter as a service, what's unique about it is that it's not really uh pro it's not really curated by algorithm it's curated by human beings so um it feels and you feel it like when you load up the service and the the way the the movies are shown to you and and the and the kind of context that the movies on the service are given for you is clearly done by humans and and that's a great touch but their original program the core was a show that kind of was interviews with special effects people and horror filmmakers and it would always end with this scene where uh the one of the curators of of shutter uh sam who it actually appears in the first episode of video palace um stands in like a very unusual video store like setup and all the tapes are white and it's not explained there's no myth to it. There's nothing there. Uh, there's just white tapes. Um, and it's kind of like, it looks like an alien video store. And so, you know, when we were working with shutter, you know, that was their only original program. And so we watched it and, uh, and that part always kind of stood out to us. It's like, that's, that was an odd choice. So when we started to think about, Hey, let's pitch a story to shutter. Um, we decided to key off of what was in the background of the core, those white tapes. And, and so it really kind of started with like, could we write something that uh, gives a mythology to those white tapes? Because I think, you know, in the same way that when we were developing a, a fictional mythology for Blair, Witch, you we were kind of playing on the, the real mythologies of witchcraft in the, in the early, uh, period of the United States. Um, you know, this was kind of like it, it offered an opportunity to take something that already existed and then that that nobody knew about. And that because there was nothing other than just the visual choice of white tapes and and write a mythology around it. And so uh, in the first episode, you hear our main character actually talk to Sam and mm. and Sam says, yeah, that's why I made this choice for the white tape. So we're really kind of retconning <laughs> uh those white tapes. We basically created a mythology for the white tapes and then developed a story where a character learns about that mythology. And so the mythology is deep enough to encompass more stories, more seasons, obviously, um, um, which is great because it's essentially uh, world building, right? But through, through a mythology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so the approach was actually kind of like, let's take something that's already a, a part of Shudder and build a mythology around it. And like I said, that was really our choice. I think, you know, the other thing is that Nick in particular was really interested in exploring the themes of what it means to be a collector. Well, uh, you know, like, a, uh, uh, I think, you know, we do a lot of work at, at, at where, where we do experiences at places like San Diego Comic-Con and New York Comic-Con and at South by Southwest. And you see the kind of collector culture uh, uh, that exists everywhere. And frankly, you know, I'm a huge collector. Nick has those tendencies. You know, we find these things we're passionate about and then we dive deep and we 
build collections and we get to know all sorts of uh, ephemera about the things we collect. And, uh, and we thought that was an interesting, you know, when you look at it at some point, you know, I have to look, I'm, I'm doing this from home and I look at my shelves full of tiki mugs and I go, yeah, you know, at some point the obsession kind of <laughs> goes a little off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> and so this was an opportunity to explore those aspects of ourselves, I think. So basically to sum up what you've been telling about how you approach video palettes, you need to you need to know uh, quite intimately, of course, the audience that you want to reach, but you also need to know what how their habits are evolving and and what areas are not cluttered with with competing content at the moment where you where you can come in and bring something to the table. And if you're starting out from scratch, it would be very good to tie it into something that people in this area or in this in this particular field would recognize and and tack on to. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the white tapes were something that, you know, is not something that's really well known. I mean, it's something I mean, most most people, even Shutter fans, haven't really picked up on that particular aspect of it, or at least they haven't really talked about it, uh, even though we built it in there. But I do think, you know, if you listen to it, uh, uh, I think we describe it as uh uh, the podcast is like what is what would happen if serial the podcast serial which is the the you know the most popular of the true crime yeah. investigative podcasts uh, what would happen if serial investigated a sinister urban legend right so in that sense uh, uh, we are saying we're going to play in the horror genre because uh, uh, you know horror there were there are horror podcasts out there. But for, for us personally, as horror fans, they all seem to lack certain things that we were looking for in podcasts. So we felt like there was an opportunity there to deliver something that just wasn't in the market space for horror fans. And then looking at how most the most popular podcasts tend to be these kind of true crime investigative podcasts. We thought, well, let's do it in that format. So let's take a familiar format to the people, to, to the largest audience of people listening to podcasts. Let's take that format, tell a horror story with it and, uh, and create something that is, uh, you know, something where we see the opportunity in the space. No one's out there asking for it, but it's the kind of thing where I think once they hear it, people just kind of go, oh, wow. And we've gotten a lot of feedback from people who say, you know, I, I don't usually listen to fiction podcasts because they don't capture my interest, but this one did. And so, you know, the, the thinking about it, like, uh, making the episodes around 20 minutes mm -hmm. was part of that, you know, wanting people because, you know, the, that first episode, you want that first episode to move fast and you want it to be 20 minutes and hopefully they go to the second episode and, you know, two episodes is about the length of an average podcast for this one. But once you're two episodes in, you're all of a sudden you're into the story. It's a 10 episode story. So, uh, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you create something that kind of draws people in and, and, and engages them right away and be and look at all the thing, all the learnings, you know, I think that's the most important thing is learning from what came before and listening to fiction podcasts where the episodes were too long and they're too dense and too much happens in each episode or, uh, everything is over explained or, you know, the narrator is busy describing things that would normally be seen 
uh, visually. And so how do you structure the story so that it can be told through action rather than description of action? Um, you know, those are, those are all challenges that, uh, ultimately, you know, Nick and I, we came up with like a, we came up with like a 12 page outline for the whole season, but then, uh, uh, Ben Rock and, and Bob DeRosa kind of took that, those 12 pages and then wrote them out into, you know, something like a 185 page script mm. and, and really flesh that out. And, you know, kudos to those guys and, and to Ben for directing it because a big part of it was we didn't want this podcast to be one guy talking to the audience, describing everything that guy did. You know, we wanted you to experience the the podcast like a movie and scenes, but we still wanted it to feel like a podcast and not a radio drama. So there is a narrator, but the story is unfolding in real time for the character. So the character is recording things as they happen. So you actually get dumped into scenes with characters speaking to each other and things happening uh, as often as you hear uh, a narrator kind of explain something. And I think that gives it, you know, we're trying to give it a more cinematic feel, if that makes sense for an audio only format. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, but I think that's part of it, right? Like trying to, trying to look at it and go, we're going to bring something new, but it's going to be familiar enough to bring people in. One final question that is perhaps on a bit of another level. I, I, I've been seeing the, from my point of view, a, a lot of changes on a lot of fronts where the new habits of the audiences have forced the industry to adapt, which they've done pretty ham-fisted at times. But uh, there are also new creators coming up that connect the audiences in a, in, in a pretty profound way or in profound ways uh, from my point of view. Now, as you've been around for a while and you've seen this industry and this the media field from a lot of different angles, uh, what are your observations? How would you say that that it's evolving over the over the past years, and and, and where are we heading? What's what's the connection between audiences and creators going to be like? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and probably an entire topic in and of itself. Um, but you know what what I've seen over the years for me uh, 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 most profoundly has been that the the real, I mean, in many ways, I think we look at what's happening online in particular with, uh, uh, person to person communication and we go, it's kind of a, in a bad place right now overall, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, people become more polarized except for creators of content, except for people who are making things other people love. And in that case, the internet has become, well, you know, there's, there's, there's dark side to it as well, obviously, as, as some fandoms have gone a, a little bit corrosive and negative, but for the most part, I think that, that people want to have, they want to feel like they have some sort of relationship or connection to the people who are making the things they love. And when a creator is able to manage that relationship effectively and in other words, not allow themselves to become too steered in the wrong direction or too mentally affected by the negative aspects of that, but can engage in the positive aspects of that. It's incredible because, um, nothing beats having that understanding of, of the people who, uh, who you're making something for, you know, and it's not that you play to specific people, but I think when you know what they love, you can do when you know what they love and you know, um, the kind of thing they're after, I think you can, you can make things that surprise them, that delight them. You can pull the rug out from under them and, and subvert expectations, uh, just as easily as you can deliver on them. Um, and you can do it 
uh, much more assuredly. And then the other thing as a creator is that uh, as you build your own audience of people who are paying attention to your work, uh, uh, suddenly it opens up avenues of new creation. So something like a podcast, which maybe you're not going to get a big marketing budget for, you know, if you're, if, if you've been making things in other media and then you go and make a podcast, you've got already a certain level of audience that's ready for it and willing to give it a shot. And that, that having an audience for a creator is power because that means that you have the power to make something on your own and get it out in the world. Or you're going to bring that audience to something. So a funder or a commissioner uh, has to look at not just you, but they have to look at the audience you're bringing. And those things give you power and freedom. And as a storyteller, as a creator, freedom is, uh, is incredible. The freedom to kind of chase what it is you want and bring the audience along is just extraordinarily powerful. And the, the fact that those relationships are no longer mediated through studios and distributors and that they can happen directly online is, uh, is just a huge change. Uh, and, it, and, and I think that, uh, what's happening is we're getting better stories or, or as audiences, we're able to find things that really speak to us easier. It can feel like it's overwhelming sometimes, but also it's kind of great to find people who consistently make something you love and then anticipate their next project, whatever that might be. Well, here's to better connections and more freedom for creators. I totally agree with that. Mike, thank you so much for, for this talk, and I'll let you go enjoy your, your Thanksgiving weekend now. Fantastic. Thank you, Simon. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.